The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. This is Maurizio Cascato and welcome to a new episode of the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Here with me, my friend and associate, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim. Nice to see you again after our London adventure. Yes, Mauricio, we're, we're back in digital form as opposed to real <laughs> live form. But uh, what a fantastic trip. Yes, it was uh, It was terrific to meet so many of our, our followers in, in person. Yes. And, and, and it was lovely that some people had travelled a fair distance with people from... Well, obviously you from Italy. No, no, we, we actually had someone, uh, someone came from Germany. We had um, Spain and Scotland, which some may think um, isn't that far away from London. But actually, considering <laughs> public transport in the UK, this is a nightmare. It's, uh, he actually took a plane from Scotland down to Heathrow. So he's a, a real trooper. So no, it was, it was great. It was really a wonderful event. And of course, what fantastic content. Really yes, was. it was a truly fantastic event and we spent a great afternoon in London with all the people gathering there. Uh, some of them, as you said, traveled long distances to be there with us. And we had some incredible guests, including a couple of historic London Symphony Orchestra members, uh, Hugh Sinan, French horn, and Eric Rees, trombone, who played on some of John's historic scores recorded in London in the late 70s, early 80s. And then, of course, we had Mike Medicino connecting from Los Angeles, who shared some truly great stuff with the people gathering there. And so the London event kept us very busy uh, for several months, and it's been a while since our last podcast episode, but we are finally back, and we are here at the end of calendar year 2023, and that means lots of great archival soundtrack releases produced by Mac Medicino coming from our beloved soundtrack labels. So we are very happy to have here with us at the Legacy of John Williams podcast soundtrack producer, Mike Medicino. Hi, Mike. Welcome back. Hey, Mike. Thank you, Maurizio. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be with you guys again. And I was digital in London. I was the only one. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the photo of... Uh, one photo was sent to me of me on this giant screen with this body <laughs> head. And it, 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 it looked like a reenactment of the opening scene from Superman. You know, I just, <laughs> I, like I should have just looked down on everybody and guilty. said, guilty. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there wasn't anything so dramatic, but there were so many... You know, great things that you shared with the audience there. Oh, it was, great. it was a pleasure. I couldn't see or hear anything. It was I could hear you, and it sounded like over with two cans and a string. But I could tell that it, uh, it was going well. So <laughs> yes, it was truly incredible, and all the wonderful clips that you shared with the people attending there, Mike, were absolutely wonderful to to see and hear. And people there were so appreciative and. You offered us a wonderful behind-the-scenes peek at the creation of a soundtrack, especially from the recording point of view, and also about your job assembling these wonderful soundtrack releases. And this end of the year is particularly exciting because, of course, there's the awfully big title <laughs> that got everyone excited, but more on that later. 
And we decided before tackling the discussion on that, in accord with Mike, uh, to open this end of the year roundtable with the other John Williams archival release by Quartet Records. A two CD set featuring remastered soundtrack editions of two Emmy Award winning scores composed by John Williams between the late 1960s and the early 1970s for made for television film versions directed by Delbert Mann of two literary classics, Heidi and Jane Eyre. These are two major works in the career of the composer for several reasons, and we want to give this release the spotlight it deserves. So we are very happy to have here together with Mike another guest who worked on this release. We are so happy to have film music writer and producer John Takis. Hello, John. Nice to have you here on your debut on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. Hey, John. Hello, Maurizio. Hello, Tim. Uh, it's great to be here. Wonderful to uh, to be on with you. And, and it's always nice to be on with Mike, of course. Absolutely. No, this, this is great. Because you've worked on a few projects over the years, so it's it's uh, terrific to have you actually with us as well this time. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's truly our honor, John, to have you here because you've been part of so many great soundtrack releases, especially as a writer of excellent liner notes. And and that was your task here uh, as well on Heidi and Jenner. It's great to have your insight today uh, discussing these two works. And as we said, uh, these are two very important works in the resume of John Williams, especially in the context of his career at that moment in time. Mike, I want to begin uh, the discussion with you because both titles had previous remastered editions, I think around 10 years ago uh, now, but they have been out of print since a while. So what was the reason behind tackling these two scores on top of having them available again? And what was the reason for putting them together in the same set? Uh, well, that was all spearheaded by Jose Benitez at Quartet Records, who had put out Heidi previously, although it was not necessarily considered a remastered version. The score tracks were basically pulled from an obscure 1980s CD, and then he got hold of the narration record, which was originally out in 1968, added that to it. But he came to me and asked, um, you know, could we do that as a two-disc set, knowing that where the rights were? And he said he had relationships with both rights holders. And so I made the inquiry, and John's people approved and said, yes, that'd be great, and go right ahead. That's, and it seemed that um, they were both for television. They both had the same director. They were both literary classics. There was a connection there. So it made sense to put them together, especially since both had technically been out before. But it was a nice opportunity to really take a search to see what else we might be able to find and to um, get rid of any audio problems that might have been present on anything that had come previously. Well, the, the marriage is, of titles is perfect, actually. And, uh, you know, John, I love your, you know, the actual title of your liner notes, uh, Moor and Mountain. You know, there's a, there's a marriage of words perfect which sum up the whole project, those two scores. You can credit Mike for that overarching title. Oh, right, okay. I, well. <laughs> I, I had titled the individual essays, and then, and then Mike said, oh, you know, it would be perfect uh, <laughs> um, yes. for that introductory perfect. page. Um, yeah, so so all credit to Mike where credit is due. Well, yeah, I, I, I stole it from We Three Kings of Orient, right? So, <laughs> but it seemed to fit because I mean, 
because yeah. Jane was on the moor and Heidi was on the mountain. So I like you know it's just too good to pass up. Mm. Oh, totally, totally. The artwork is outstanding. You know, Jim Titus has done a wonderful job once again. John Williams' name has never looked as big. Uh, I think since since the terminal way back, uh, you know, that do you remember the terminal? We all kind of raved on message boards saying, "Wow, <laughs> go, go DreamWorks Records!" John Williams' name is huge. Um, <laughs> anyway, but no, it, look, it, it's 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 tremendous, and thank you guys for putting love into this score once again. something more there that speaks about the level of commitment that John Williams put on both projects and also about what they meant for his career. And both works are cornerstones of uh, Williams' over at that moment in time because I think together with other works from the same period, uh, you know, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, they signal the beginning of a new and important phase of his career, both professionally and also musically. And if we look at Heidi, is particularly interesting because we can say with a certain amount of fairness that it's the first score where he could write in a purely symphonic slash orchestral vernacular that would become one of his trademarks a decade later. And I was thinking at what he did before Heidi and... Yes, there are a few dramas where he wrote in a style that is perhaps a tad closer to his voice of the later years, but the 1960s were, for him, mostly comedies uh, accompanied by jazz-infused scores in the style of Henry Mancini, as we know. So Heidi, I think, it was the very first time in which he got a canvas where he could go all-out symphonic, and I think John Williams himself referred to Heidi as his first Mullerian or Mellor type mm, right. of school. Yeah, and so much of, of course, what we think of as the the Hollywood sound that Williams kind of took up and, and perfected and made relevant again, of course, goes back to uh, that Germanic tradition, you know, with all of the imports from that, you know, part of Europe who came to Hollywood and, and really helped shape that sound. So yeah, he really had an opportunity both to tap into that and then to begin to put his own stamp on it, you know, and, and all of those those wonderful little signatures that are so characteristic of, of his sound. It's a real showcase for that. And, and not only did he get to do this, you know, to write the score for this film, but it had great exposure too. You know, a lot of audiences um, were listening to this and, and taking note and saying, oh, gosh, wow. I love the quote from uh, Frederick Brogger uh, at the, after hearing, you know, the scoring session. And he wrote and he said, after two days of scoring, he wrote to man, he said, all I can tell you is that we had both better try to contract with Johnny for life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, 
It was quite a remarkable score. Williams was specially thanked in the post-coverage press, uh, post-airing press. He was specifically called out. There were ads taken out for the, the record. So it was a wonderful opportunity for Williams to show what he was capable of when given a dramatic canvas of this kind of scope and quality, and then to put that before uh, a significant audience. And the Emmy um, was absolutely well-deserved. and the success of Heidi as a film made for television is uh, another testament of how that was the beginning of, of a new phase for the career of John Williams. And, and speaking of the film itself, I think that we cannot get away without mentioning one of the reasons why <laughs> this made-for-television film is very famous for, uh, which has nothing to do with the music or the actual film itself, but it refers to a very specific incident <laughs> that became very popular in the history of television in the United States. So if you want to elaborate more on this, guys? Well, I think you were, were talking about the, you know, the famous, one of the famous uh, things in television history. It was only really an East Coast U.S. phenomenon. If you were not on the, in the Eastern time zone, it really didn't apply to you. Let's see if I can get, as far as I remember, there was a very, very prominent, high-profile professional football playoff game scheduled to precede Heidi. There were so many timeouts that it was running over, which was very uncommon in those days. The policy at the time usually was to join something in progress, but uh, apparently so many families were just waiting to watch Heidi and uh, that uh, parents got nervous that it, um, that it was going to, the beginning was going to be missed. So they started calling the NBC headquarters in New York and they were flooded with calls. So much so that legend has it that the switchboard kind of locked up. And so um, the people in the control booth who had orders to just basically switch to Heidi at, uh, at the appointed time, um, no matter what else was going on, they just followed those instructions and right before the end of the game. 
And I don't remember the details now. Maybe, John, you could fill them in. Yeah, it, it was that um, there. it was the Raiders versus the Jets. Uh, the Oakland Raiders versus the New York Jets. And yeah, so many people were were calling the lines, whether it be, you know, people who wanted to see Heidi or people who wanted to see the end of the football game, uh, <laughs> that that no, that nothing could get through. So within the last minute that got cut off, the Jets scored two touchdowns and two extra points. They won the game. It was a huge reversal. <laughs> and and then they Mike I think Mike brought this detail to my attention but in the in the evening that it was it was insult to injury you know with, with both sides because the people on the east coast had the game cut off and and they had to wait and it, it so they had that indignity and then for viewers of Heidi the uh the climax of the film was you know disrupted by you know, a football game score scrolling across the bottom of the screen. So, yeah, it, it was a it was a, a notorious event. It was the media called it the Heidi Bowl, um, and uh, it it is still talked about today. It it caused changes in the way that, that sporting events were broadcast, so that this would nothing like this would happen again. And they're still um, in force. That are still in force. Um, so yeah, it it had a certain amount of of additional notoriety um, because of that. And another thing we should mention is that, like Jane Eyre, this film had distribution theatrically uh, overseas and in some countries, and I believe in England. You know, Delbert Mann was was a, an excellent director. It was he agreed to do this film because it was being given the budget and scope to shoot it like a big screen feature. Yes. Not, not like your typical made for TV production, you know, the cinematography, the, the script, which was by Earl Hamner Jr. Who uh, created the Waltons famously. Yeah. It's a very accomplished adaptation. It's a beautifully shot film. It absolutely kills me that it is impossible to view the film in in the quality it deserves. I'm reading these old articles, you know, when I'm doing my research about, you know, these gorgeous theatrical prints and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, where's our where's our nice, you know, Blu-ray restoration of these of these projects? It's a pity that it's that it's so obscure because this is not just some low budget made for TV thing that yeah. Williams happened to provide a magnificent score for. It's a really quality film. That's uh, true, I think, for both of these films. They're for not both of as them, available yes. as they should be. And they're still the one sort of standard deaf master for Heidi that kind of floats around to these um, sort of stage C streaming services. And uh, But uh, nothing's ever done more with it, and it's, and it's really, really a shame. Yeah, it's very sad that either Heidi or Jane Eyre are available in good quality uh, physical media uh, Blu-ray or DVD. I mean, th there's there's a stuff that was distributed many years ago. I think Genera is available on DVD. On you can find it on several online retailers. But you know the colors are all wrong, and then it doesn't look any good. So it, it's really a shame that more people cannot enjoy these two films uh, properly on physical media. Hence, the release of these remastered edition is all the more important to have a, at least a testament of these two. Wonderful productions. I should point out that technically, also because Quartet Records is based in Europe, um, technically this is actually considered film soundtrack release, even though 
in the U.S., we know these as television movies. Yeah. Um, for anybody in Spain or anywhere in Europe, it's going to be considered the um, soundtracks from the feature films. And I'm pretty sure that the one version of Jane Eyre that's floating around is the theatrical version. Yes. And that there was probably some changes made um, that cuts made that were of things that were in the TV version that we haven't seen. Well, if it, to anyone listening out there, yeah, Jane Eyre, there are a number of um, there are a number of of DVDs out there, um, and as Mike indicates, they're not all they're not all the same cut. Um, the The most complete version, the best looking version that I'm aware of, is on on Triton Multimedia. Um, that's the version I have. That seems to run full length. So if anyone out there wants to to familiarize themselves with the film and is looking into picking up a DVD, that's the one I would recommend um, because you'll see something probably closer to the version that that Williams saw. Yeah, and, and this is actually quite interesting to you know this situation where you have something released originally on television and then run theatrically in Europe, which was quite frequent, I think, back in the day. I think also Duel by Steven Spielberg was released as a theatrical film in, in Europe, as uh, is, of course, well known. Right. With that one, they went so far as to have Spielberg, a year after he finished making it, to go out and shoot new footage so that it came yeah. to enough of a length for a feature. Yeah, exactly. And it actually had happened to John Williams before in the U.S., where he had scored some things that were intended for television, for Universal, that then either because they had extra violence or something, or it was a pilot that didn't get yeah picked up they decided let's release it as a feature yes i think there's a movie called the sergeant Riker in john williams filmography which actually is a longer cut of an episode of one of the anthology shows he was doing for universal back in the day right. that was called the case against paul Riker. so and that was got distribution as a movie mm -hmm. so it's listed in his uh, feature film filmography but this brings me to the other topic i want to discuss with you guys uh, on this occasion, which is the relationship between John Williams and television. I'd love to have here with us today the ultimate expert on uh, John Williams' television music, uh, who's John Burdengame, and I hope that John will be able to join us one day for one of these chats because I think he could contribute a lot, especially on this subject. John Williams started his career in Hollywood as a composer writing a lot for television, and it's known how fundamental this experience was for him in building his own voice and develop his skills as a composer for drama. And the work he did for the sci-fi Irwin Allen shows like Lost in Space and The Time Tunnel or The Land of the Giants was perhaps the first time his music got a tremendous exposure and it's stuff that is still dearly beloved to this day for many people uh, growing up uh, in that generation of the mid-1960s, but even more important, in my opinion, was the work that Williams did for the anthology TV shows at Universal, uh, for which he wrote an incredible amount of music that spans across many different genres and style. I mean, John Williams himself referred to that period as a unique learning ground where he could write every week in a different style or for a different genre. One week he could do a comedy show, then the following week a costume drama, and then a war piece or a western, and so on. And that's incredible. Well, something like that would be the best uh, kind of working education for any composer. And I mean, he's talked about the department that Stanley Wilson 
ran at Universal. And so he was blessed to work under Stanley and at 20th Century Fox under Lionel Newman, who brought him there. So, I mean, these guys ran incredibly efficient television music departments and hired these guys who could change genres like that. And sometimes you'd say, you know, you just know how to do it without thinking because you didn't have time to go explore and whatever. You know, you just had to sit down and write it because of the nature of how television is made. And it certainly was made then. It was uh, very much a factory thing. And most of them, you know, um, you might not expect that they would air too many times. Something like Lost in Space had a great life in syndication and became a cultural phenomenon that's still known to this day and has had re remakes and such, and, and uh, people still know the music when they hear it. So, But, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't dismiss uh, the quality that went into television writing um, in that era, particularly those two studios. Yeah, it was the it was exactly the same for Jerry Goldsmith. You know, by the time he was scoring these feature films, he'd had all of that vast experience uh, under his belt, both in doing projects quickly and with limited resources and with hopping from genre to genre. Um, Jerry Goldsmith, who was originally slated to score Heidi, actually, uh, before, before John Williams, um, uh, even to the point where his name and, you know, fee was popping up on uh, on contracts and paperwork and such. Yeah, that's one of the various circumstances or instances where the careers of John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith crossed paths. Mm. But speaking again about the crucial role of this score in John Williams' filmography, in addition to the fact that this is, as we said, maybe one of the very first times where he would be allowed to write in that kind of traditional symphonic vernacular, I think the other thing that truly fascinates me and this new edition it lends itself well to this kind of appreciation, is how beautifully lyrical and tuneful this score is. And this was perhaps one of the very first times where John Williams was given the opportunity to write big melodies and big themes like, you know, the old days of Hollywood. <laughs> I think let's go back and get some perspective on this um, back to Lionel Newman and 20th Century Fox and see if we can figure out the through line here because a lot of people in the film score community associate the 60s on John Williams with first of all Lost in Space, Irwin Allen and comedies. Yes. But if you look a little bit deeper, you see that the comedies start to get a little more sophisticated, at least in terms of the directors he was working with, and then sprinkled in there, as you pointed out, are a few dramas, like the only picture Frank Sinatra directed, None But the Brave, in 1965. And I think it's clear that while John was probably very happy in Lyle Newman's department there, and there was never 
um, an absence of some project to be working on, uh, that he probably was looking to, you know, uh, expand and do some do some more ambitious things. And I really think that a spinning point would be Valley of the Dolls, which is mm-hmm. nowadays known as sort of a camp classic and a movie that if they screen, you go there to laugh at it. But it was based on an incredible best-selling novel by Jacqueline Suzanne, her first novel, I think. And the movie was a huge, huge hit for 20th Century Fox. It had uh, songs by Andre Previn and his wife at the time, Dory, with John adapting, conducting, and writing an underscore. The underscore we've never heard, but it's actually really amazing, and there's a lot of great uh, dramatic orchestral writing in there. But I find that project interesting because it's a case where the album is credited to Johnny Williams, but on screen for the movie, it's John Williams. So there's the spinning point right there. And it happens to coincide with um, Andre Previn leaving Hollywood and have kind of having enough of it and going to do, I think, Houston Symphony and and probably encouraging John to get out of Hollywood too. (laughs) But, um, Mm -hmm. and then... On the heels of Valley of the Dolls comes Fitzwilly, which was the first film, I believe, that was a Mirish production that John did. He would end up doing four, which would be Midway Filler on the Roof and Dracula. Yes. But it was his first collaboration with Delbert Mann. That's a very sophisticated comedy and has a terrific score that John wrote for it. Probably my favorite of his of his comedy scores. Of his comedy, period. yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a huge tuba solo at one point, which predates, you know, the whole Jabba and all the rest that great tuba writing that he would do in the 80s and 90s. Colors of orchestration in that score are quite outstanding, and of course that song, you know, "Make Me Rainbows," is just utter, utterly, utterly charming. And you have a lot of these comedies that had songs, which comes back to the, the whole lyrical side of it. Whether it's "How to Steal a Million" with uh, the, the, his first movie, William Wyler, first A-list director, really that he probably worked with, two or three that had Leslie Brickus, who was present doing Doctor Doolittle at the time, uh, do for him, and you had the uh, the Bergmans um, doing "Make Me Rainbows." So you had a lyrical, uh, so this was all ultimately pointing towards, yeah. you know, bran- branching out and going to, into another direction. Goodbye, Mr. Chips was something that had been on the boards for a long time, and it ended up going to Leslie after the Previn score was discarded. So, um, and both John and Leslie felt a little funny about that, but Andre said, no, go ahead and do it. I think you should do it. But it's interesting how we go from Jacqueline Suzanne to over the next few years, John is scoring Joanna Spiri, James Hilton, uh, Sholem Aleichem, uh, Mark Twain, <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, and uh, yeah. Charlotte Bront. So uh, suddenly he's doing these great masters of literature. Um, so you see this amazing transition and then starting to move um, out of the U.S. And Heidi, I think, was the first actual score he did outside of the U.S. Yeah. 
And he was right, he wrote his symphony and he was doing some concert works. And I think, so there was a real transition there. We see a real transition right at this time. And Heidi's, I think, you know, it's a, it's a linchpin in that. Well, you talked about the the cusp, about the transition. I believe Fitzwilly, uh, Delbert Mann's previous production, I believe that was the last big screen feature to have that Johnny Williams credit. I think you're right, yeah. Which was then which then changed with, uh, with Valley of the Dolls, so. Right. Yeah, and I was thinking about how when one thinks about a shift in John Williams' career in terms of getting more mature assignments, I think the majority of people tend to think about uh, a score like The Reavers as being the one that signs, uh, you know, a, a watershed about how things were and what they became afterwards. But I think that possibly Heidi is perhaps an even better example. <laughs> It's interesting that, you know, to me, it's some, something just opened up creatively there because you go from Heidi, which has to evoke the Swiss Alps and has that particular kind of sound, to Goodbye Mr. Chips, which is absolutely English. Then he comes back from that and was going to take a break for several months. He wrote to Audrey Previn saying, I don't want to do any movie work for at least a few months. But then along comes Mark Rydell with the Reavers, for which Lalo Schifrin had done a score that was discarded and asked, he was only back here six weeks when uh, he was asked to do the Reavers and did the work in a few weeks. And that's entirely Americana. So I don't know if the opportunities opened up or if it was more about something creatively had been opened up in him. But um, I like to think the latter and that this experience of going to Europe and having so much time there played a very big role in expanding his sort of his palette as a composer creatively. And you know, you you mentioned earlier the 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 lyricism, and the melodicism. I mean, you can you can look back here and you can see some of those those seeds. You can draw a straight line from some of this stuff. My two favorite you know examples in Heidi. Well, melodically speaking, um, you have a heavy emphasis on this this interval of a sixth, right? Um, you hear it right out at the start with da 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 da. That's your six right there. And it's also the emphasized with a with a triad with rising da 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 right. 
in my mind, this interval has significance um, for Williams because when you start to look at those fam- more famous scores, this is one of his musical devices, I think I, I call the notes, this idealized femininity, right? So you have uh, Marion's theme, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Um, Leia's theme, da 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 right? So there's a through line, just, you know, in terms of his his melodic sensibilities. Yeah, because it gives you that yearning feeling of something. Yes, the- Brings you out, you know, longing. big feeling of love and sense of exactly yeah, yeah. yes. It's a little bit beyond that that perfect fifth there. Just a little bit aspirational, a little bit yearning, right? And uh, use of the uh, the horns in particular and that sixth interval also has, in this case, like a yodeling quality to it. So you, it, mm-hmm. it, it places you in the, in the setting so, so, so perfectly. Sure, yeah. And so I draw a line there. And then especially towards the end of the film, where where there's the miracle scene on the alm where where Clara regains the use of her legs, and there's just this stunning religioso string writing, that of course we would hear you know Williams getting to operate in that vein again in in many other films to come, you know Return of the Jedi, The Fury, I mean you go on and on and on, but again there it's stunning it's it feels fully formed. To anyone who only knows John Williams from that kind of later, you know, 70s period, I think it'll be a real eye-opener to see that so much of this sound, you know, those great horn lines, the the, the wonderful intricate counterpoint. There's a, there's a scherzo in here, you know, which, which of course was a major feature of many Williams scores of the, the 70s and 80s and all that. All those elements are here in 1968. Yeah, that cue that you mentioned, uh, it's called Clara Walks in the new release was formerly known as The Miracle. It's truly a fantastic example of John Williams' ability in enhancing a pivotal scene, a pivotal moment in the storytelling. Even more than that, I think it's fascinating to hear how in three or four minutes he builds a sort of musical dawn, you know? And that is an occasion which is not usually given to composers to be allowed to develop an idea over the course of three or four minutes and give it a truly symphonic sense of purpose and and ultimately a sense of development. This cue is so fascinating for me because in addition to maybe reminding me a little bit of the finale from Stravinsky's The Firebird, which again it speaks about rebirth, it's an absolutely fascinating example of John Williams writing for strings, as you mentioned, but also how he develops a fantastic dialogue in the woodwind section, making this wonderful, delicate but sophisticated texture that really hits you right at the center of your heart because it's an important scene and even back then he knew how to achieve the best as a master symphonic storyteller. Mm -hmm. 
back to the lyrics that the main melody for Heidi they knew it was going to be a song before they shot is that right John yes actually it was the very first thing he did because Jennifer Edwards um who's the uh plays Heidi daughter of Blake Edwards the director she sings she sings the song in the film so they needed to have music for her to sing to because uh Delbert Mann he had good I think he had good instincts for how music could function in a film. One through line when you're reading uh, in the notes, you'll see some evidence to this. And of course you can see in the films is that he thought a lot about how music could be used to enhance the drama. It wasn't an incidental question for him. So, you know, in Heidi, he had that song. He knew that song was going to be a feature in Jane Eyre. He knew that there was a lot that he wanted to leave unspoken, and he was going to rely on on Williams to kind of carry some of the weight and doing the more internal things. So he was the type of director who who thought about what music could contribute to the final drama, even as he was, you know, planning the film, even as it was being scripted. So this song was key. It was very important. It's interesting, actually, because if you go back and you watch the film, the lyrics are completely different. Well, maybe not, you know, 100%. There might be a, a little bit of an overlap. Um, but it's a different set of lyrics. They were written by, by I believe, Hamner and his wife. And they they sent them to Williams. And, and Williams, first thing he recorded, he actually did a demo uh, with his with his own daughter. Yeah, it just was, uh, it was good uh, fortune that he had a young girl at the time. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who probably read Heidi and probably knew the story. Well, yeah. So. And and they they flew it over to uh, to Europe and and Jennifer Edwards you know stayed up the night before and she learned it and she went on and she sang it the next day, but if you watch the film again you'll you'll have a different set of lyrics because when the time came to do the album they brought in um, Rod McEwen uh, to write a new set of lyrics to the same melody, uh, which was recorded I believe by Carrie Chase, 
who uh, was not a known name, but but we did some deep dive research, and at the time she was a she was actually a dancer who was trying to launch a, a career as a singer, and she had a couple of uh, high profile things, and this was one of them. So yeah, it's a different set of lyrics, but that was always part of the architecture, right? It was always the the idea that you would have this song as kind of a linchpin. So, I, you know, what, what you mentioned about recording the song specifically for the album, this brings to mind the fact that the soundtrack album of Heidi was something of a little bit of a curiosity in terms of um, how it was presented because it featured uh, lots of narration recorded specifically for the album by actor Michael Redgrave that overlapped, of course, with the music itself. And there were only a few moments where it was just uh, music cues, but it was mostly narration and music together. Time has melted away, and it seemed for a while that it would move on past me. Then I was a ragged old beggar living on the fringe of life, never tasting or feeling, just sitting high up here on the Alm nursing a bitterness, a hatred for myself, for my own waste and neglect. I wouldn't see or speak to anyone. And when Father Richter brought me the child, Heidi, I told him to take her back down the mountain. The old priest couldn't understand. How does one turn away one's own granddaughter who has been abandoned, an orphan seeking shelter? It's not that difficult, I told him. You simply just don't care. And I think some of those sessions were recorded not in Germany, but in, in London. I think, Tim, you were able also to retain some of the information about the those sessions, right? Yes, the well, sessions Well, I think you, were... I, I, yeah, as I recall, yeah, Tim, you sent ahead. me and said, no, I don't think we found anything on Heidi. And I said, look more closely, because it was tacked onto <laughs> a Goodbye Mr. Chip session. That's right, yes. Um, and, and basically, that's how it happened. Now, uh, this is kind of an aside, but there's an interesting little story that gets connected with that. So Rod McEwen wrote the lyrics for A Place of My Own, which again, the song version on the app for the album was done in London. But uh, this was going on right at the time where the producer Arthur Jacobs was having a lot of concern and anxiety over Leslie Brickus's music for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. At that moment, Leslie was struggling finding the song that would come towards the end of the film. Ultimately, it was called You and I. He had made many, many attempts at this and was not finding something that was just right. Well, Arthur Jacobs, being 
sort of legendary bundle of nerves was start, starting to say, well, maybe we should get somebody else. I think he had Petula Clark and her husband wrote something. And then he asked Rod McEwen to take a stab at one song. So it might have been right around this same time when he was there to do this Heidi song. So Rod McEwen goes home uh, over a weekend, writes an entire score and comes back with about 10 songs for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. One of them had the lyric, Mr. and Mrs. Chips Esquire, sitting at home at night by the fire. So <laughs> anyway, mm. Leslie was, uh, this made the press and everything. And you, and, you, and you know I was close with Leslie, but there were lots of funny stories about <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, it ended up with a two LP set that was circulated among the crew called The Losers Sing. And it had, you know, all the 30-something other songs by the Previn score and the McEwen score and all these other songs that didn't make it. I think the pressure did inspire him. He had written this wonderful song called Tomorrow With Me, which they recorded in one take um, with an amazing John Williams arrangement to it. But uh, it was it's a great song, but it was not right for being sung at 1 o'clock in the morning or whenever this was supposed to be. But he sat down and thought about his wife, Evie, and out came You and I. And it was right. And so the, the need for Goodbye, Mr. Chips was fulfilled, but that also became Leslie and Evie's song. But uh, it's an interesting... Petula Clark later did an album with Rob McEwen also, so this is all just uh, kind of crazy bits of connection and, of course, having Blake Edwards' daughter in the movie as Heidi and uh, Michael Redgrave, who plays the grandfather, also had done the headmaster in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And um, and who's the um, the goat herd? The goat herd. Um, uh, uh, the goat herd. Peter. Um, yeah. Oh, John Mulder Brown, who actually became yeah. something so, like a British teen idol, and like when he got a little older. Um, but uh, he was a schoolboy in one of the the latter part of Goodbye, Mr. Ships. It's the um, that narration album is an interesting way to experience the the film and the score. I, yeah. and, and it's on the, the quartet disc, of course. And it did get some praise as for, and it got some awards or something for like a best children's record or something like that, right? It did get some acknowledgement, at least in educational circles as being... Um, yeah. And of course, that was the album that was being promoted after the film. It was, you know, see the film tonight, hear the album tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a wonderful thing to, to include. It's not just um, film dialogue. It is completely new uh, narration that was prepared by Brogger, uh, new narration, new performance. And then the the little kind of grace notes, the, the two parts that were recorded in London, as you say, were, of course, the song. And then an arrangement of, uh, of the love theme, which is the really the only time in this particular project where Williams kind of nudged things into more of a, a pop vernacular. There's a little bit of that um, mixed in.
And that's an element of the film and score that actually was not present in the novel. That was one of um, Hamner's innovations. Uh, to add a little bit of adult interest was to develop this kind of more adult romance between Herr Sesemann, who is, is the, you know, the widower whose daughter is, is uh, paraplegic and, and whom Heidi goes to live in his household, and then the governess, Frau Rottenmeier. So Hamner kind of developed the love story there uh, where, where, you know, there are different social standings, so there's a barrier there. Yeah. And, and so that, that was not present in the original novel, but I thought that it, I think it actually works fairly well. Um, given that, given that we're taking a, a rather long book, a very episodic book, and boiling it down into a, a film narrative, and yet it was helped tremendously by the fact that you had Maximilian Schell and Gene Simmons. Yes, absolutely. But that, of course, then also gives Williams an opportunity to add another dimension to the music. Yeah, and I think maybe one of the reasons why we don't associate Heidi as much as we should with uh, sort of the birth of a. Uh, fully orchestral uh, sound from Williams is because it had not gotten a release on its own or really have been heard or treated properly, in my view, um, really until now. And so, you know, when we undertook the project, one of the things was let's go see what else we could find rather than have to just stick with um, what was apparently a tape that had originally been with Studio Hamburg and um, yeah, had been used so. to make this CD in the 80s, but nobody knew whatever happened to the tape. Undertaking a thorough search with Universal Music Group, because this album was on Capitol, they found one-inch tape for the narration project, which had all of the musical selections prepared to include on the narration record, but separate. So for the narration presentation, I did not remix it. We went for the actual finished original album master, newly transferred. But um, for the score, we actually had the music on this element. So I was able to work with doing the cleanup and getting it to sound as, as good as I, I thought it could. But in addition, um, once we had that, John was able to sleuth out how to reconfigure it in the proper sequencing because they you know the music that you hear with each track on the narration record does not necessarily go with the corresponding scene in the film they use what music was going to work um, for the, for the needs of that track with the older album that's what we had it was a weird beast it, it was it was a weird source to be working from but substantially it was the music as it had been prepared for the the record album and because we didn't have that element that Mike was able to locate the most that could be done was deciding what sequence you know to put these these things in and I believe we also removed a little bit of um, looping that had been done to conform to the record length but that is all we could do um, I did not at the time have the original slates and cue titles in front of me this was really a chance this new release was really a chance to do everything the way we would have wanted to do it right we had the we had the element which with Mike's expert preparation we were able to put into its its proper sequence proper film sequence have everything properly titled because this element am i right john in some cases had little extensions of a even even if it was just a note yes that we, yeah. that we could not hear before so it, it told you oh this ties to that and so we were able to actually put the cues back the way they were supposed to be yes so you will 
uh, if all you're familiar with is previous releases of the score, you are going to hear a, a little bits and bobs here and there, um, you know, at the beginning or the ends of cues where you're hearing it as it was recorded and not as it had been kind of hacked up for the for the narration album. It's, it's a shame that we didn't find something with the whole score, that they only saved what was going to be needed to create the record album. Yeah. And that's always frustrating. We did do as thorough a search. I mean, we even found a reel that had the, just the cowbells and wind to include on the uh, yeah. narration record. I mean, so, and, and it, you know, one of the weird things about um, dealing with the Universal Music Group elements is that a lot of these things have been inventoried and had and photos scanned of them as part of the process of determining what was and wasn't lost in the 2008 backlot fire at the Universal Studios. So things that, you know, we thought might have been lost, we later discovered were not, um, such as the, I think, the multi-track um, album recording of the Iger Sanction. But uh, it, it was a way of this the company figuring out what was not burned up. And consequently, when you now go and look for something, they can say, yes, here it is. Um, and we had the very interesting to look at the box scans of all these tapes from 1968. You had to, there was a lot to study. And uh, buried in there was, you know, some information about what cues were what. And that helped us, you know, little by little to sort of piece it together and make sure that we were as accurate as possible and to finally assemble what is essentially a legitimate soundtrack album for the film. One interesting thing is that we were able to pretty conclusively identify what the the unused cue is, because there was actually a short cue that was prepared that appeared on the soundtrack album or the original LP with the narration that wasn't used in the film. Uh, and when you put things together with all the slates and you looked at the at the cue list there, it's the track called uh, Stealing Rolls, which based on if you go back and you read the novel. Uh, that's a reference to a scene where where Heidi has has been hoarding. Uh, she's been sneaking white dinner rolls from the dinner table and hoarding them, I believe, to send back to Peter's grandmother at the Alp um, as, as a charitable act. You know, this her, the, these rolls were her favorite, and she never gets them. So she she's taking all these dinner rolls and she's kind of like hoarding them in her uh, in her wardrobe <laughs> um, in her room. And it's it's a uh, it's a humorous scene. Um, I can see why it's the sort of scene that might be cut for length. To my knowledge, to the best I can figure out, that's the only scene that William scored that didn't make. The, the final cut of the film. Because as part of that, we, you also figured out that um, the scene with the monkey at the dinner table was tracked with yes. the, with the goat milking music, right? Yes, that we, are, we uh, yeah we also could be clear about that because we had had those slates. So yeah, that that was another another little. Uh, another so it was a, a very interesting little adventure of piece by piece, you know, the mysteries being solved. Yeah. 
and when you're going back 55 years, you know, and uh, with archaeology, it really is that, you know. So, but I really think uh, um, I was very happy with how the music sounded, and I think that um, people will be really surprised when they get it, and it, hopefully, it will. I think create a new sense of this whole transitional period in John Williams. I, so I really think that Heidi stands out as um, sort of an indispensable part of that. I mean, when you go from the, his 1967 scores to this one, there's a big sudden change. I should add, it. it's also very fortuitous that the the material that did survive, when properly assembled and, and put into its, you know, kind of film narrative program, is actually a very satisfying musical program. You know, there's always a risk when you're dealing with an incomplete, you know, score that there are, you know, parts that are, are missing such that when you line them all up chronologically, you know, there may be an issue with the flow. I don't think that's the case here. I think this is an album that that plays beautifully, given, you know, what we've got, um, uh, the way Mike laid it all out. And and it's just a very, I think it's a very cohesive and, and satisfying musical narrative. mentioned about the tapes being found in the Hamburg studio. Now here's an interesting story that John, you talk about on pages eight and nine in the booklet. We know that Williams is so, you know, is so much of music history is in his blood. So it must have been a, a thrill for him to, to visit, you know, the same studio that like von Karajan would have been, you know, conducting <laughs> the Berlin Philharmonic, all those legendary albums. So, and you, I mean, you talked to John Burlingham about this, um, didn't you? And Chat to us about the significance of that trip to Hamburg. Well, this is something that um, that comes from uh, from John's book, Music for Primetime. And so, yeah, he he talked about this, and and I recommend people check that out because there's there's more to that interview than I you know could quote here. But yeah, I mean this this was um, it was a very advanced you know studio. It was a, a very accomplished group of musicians. Uh, there was real history there, right? There were a lot of the orchestra members were from the Hamburg Opera. And Williams uh, told Burlingame, he said he had actually gone to some of the opera productions to to hear them play. You know, Williams, as we know, is very much a, a musician's composer, right? You know, he understands the orchestra intimately. He understands ranges. And not only that, but he will write to the strengths of individual players and ensembles. So this kind of gave him an opportunity to, to size up what he'd be working with and then compose for that. So yeah, it just it really all came together beautifully. And the fruits of that are very apparent in the surviving recording.
another school that is paired in this beautiful two CD set, Gen Air. Again, a made-for-television movie directed by Delbert Mann, produced by Frederick Brogger for Omnibus, for which John Williams wrote a truly fantastic, beautiful score for which he won his second Emmy Award. Gen Air is a certainly a score that is quite popular among true John Williams connoisseurs and aficionados, but it's also a score which the composer himself has singled out several times as one of his own personal favorites. And it's not hard to understand why, because um, this is a score where John Williams poured all of his love for English music and English composers and the folklore of traditional English music. And of recording there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it also reinforced his relationship with the London music scene. And that's another interesting angle to which we can turn a spotlight on. So what we have here is a remastered version of the original soundtrack album that was released in 1970, uh, which is, I think, one of John Williams' best in terms of presentation and actual construction as a program of, uh, of a soundtrack album, followed by a selection of previously unreleased material that you might were able to find after a very thorough research process to find more material from this school. Uh, so, Mike, tell us about how you put together this new release. Well, now that we've spoken and I've thought a little bit more about it, what I think I now recall was Jose asking me, do you think it's worth putting Jane Eyre out again? Because he didn't know at the time that we had found additional material. But even that is incredibly frustrating. But I have to give the credit to Neil Bulk because he and I were helping people out at 20th Century Fox in tw early 2019 when the Disney acquisition was happening. And we had to go through a lot of the music elements that were there in the Len Angle collection to pull out anything that was not Disney element. A lot was there. So, I mean, look, we found Dragon Slayer there. When we did Dragon Slayer, it was there. So 1941 had some things there, Dracula, Superman. There was a lot just that, that was there because John was, worked there and... Um, Len Engel was a 20th Century Fox. We were going through tapes and Neil said, look, here's two rolls of Jane Eyre. And I think it said um, seven of nine and eight of nine or whatever. So from a set of nine rolls of one inch three track. So live three track Eric Tomlinson mixes. And uh, we just scoured every place that was open there to look through tapes hoping to find more, but we ended up very frustratingly with these just two roles. Unfortunately, there was nothing on there in terms of score that we didn't have before because there were film sessions and then there were some later album sessions. And I think that, um, I think we lay out what was recorded what? Yeah, I think so, uh, yeah. On, on, this, on this release, right? So, so all we really got was one extra piece of source music, and then I was able to just create some alternate takes of, of what we had from these roles.
this score is magnificent, and I would almost go so far as to say television didn't deserve something this great. <laughs> um, but then we know it was released as a feature, so um, it, it just is it totally equal in every way possible to anything that you would put uh, with any film. this for a very long time and hoped that we'd find something extra so did try and we did locate this it was very very tantalizing and i wish there were more but um it did yield at least another little bit of a sonic window yes. into what was recorded at the time and mixed from this three track as opposed to the stereo mix that had been done to create the album you get a little bit of a different perspective on it, a little bit different sense of performance. And yes. uh, I'm just grateful that we, after all these years, we found anything additional. And to echo Mike about what a magnificent score this is, it's very interesting the way it all kind of came together. It has some unique features in the making of it. After Heidi, Mann and Brogger were gung-ho about working with Williams again. They wanted him for their follow-up, which was uh, David Copperfield. Heidi was a success enough, we should mention, that it, it, it launched this whole little miniature series of, of literary adaptations, uh, the next of which was David Copperfield. And Williams had done a episode of um, CBS Playhouse called Saturday Adoption uh, with Mann in 1968. And Mann was, was eager to work with him on David Copperfield. But because of Goodbye Mr. Chips, I think we determined when looking at the schedules, you know, the extended work required by that prevented that. And so David Copperfield wound up with a score by Malcolm Arnold. I believe it was his last score. But when Jane Eyre came along, it was actually very fortuitous, the timing of it. Um, and I'm sure Mike can expound a little bit more about this, but it, it, was, it was Fiddler on the Roof, right? He was, he was working on, on Fiddler on the Roof, and they had, to, they had to do some shooting in continental Europe. And Will, so Williams was kind of left in London, right? It was uh, for, a, for a couple months there. Or, or right. Well, I mean, they had done all the Fiddler song pre-recording. So therefore, that was all the playbacks that they would take for the filming. And a number of the songs were um, shot on location in what is now Croatia. So, but during that interval, waiting for them to come back, while Williams would still be having to do work on things that were to be shot at Pinewood, like the dream sequence on the cemetery graveyard and things like that, a lot of arranging still going on. You know, uh, Jane Eyre was, I think, it was being filmed during that period or... What had happened was that a man came into scout locations and Williams joined them, I think, right? Yeah, they they went up to, to Yorkshire. Uh, 
Yorkshire and, and kind of Bronte country. And, and we're looking at all of the actual locations, in some cases, the actual buildings and things, uh, historic kind of territory yeah. where where Charlotte Bronte would, would have been living and writing. And we've mentioned already, you know, William's deep personal affinity for British music yes. and British tradition. Yeah. So, you know, that was existent. And so, yeah, he had this space. He went up with the director just to kind of to tour these locations, to soak up the scenery, the the atmosphere, the moors, you know. It's really remarkable when a composer has that, that kind of opportunity. And again, especially someone with William's uh, own background and his affinities. And he kind of took all of that in and poured that into his music. spoke about this in interviews that he was kind of wanting to, to do this in, in kind of the tradition of the British folk revival, where you had, you know, classical composers kind of taking this British folk music and folk tunes and expressing it and developing it symphonically. He wanted to write something in that tradition to kind of take these melodies that were inspired by that, the land and the people. Yes. And then to give it that, that kind of rich elaboration and development. says this outright that his heart was close to this that his you know that it was in there and you can see it in the quality of the music you can see it in the success of the album and what a beautiful album it is and the additional music that he wrote and recorded for yeah. it and you can see it in how it continues to survive in his in his concert performances and that he was eager enough to be able to play this that when the original manuscripts were destroyed he sat down with the with the record that he had made <laughs> And copied everything by ear, copied it down by hand, so That's that devotion. you know he would have it for performance. Yeah. So yeah, this score is really close to his heart, and that absolutely shines through yeah. on on the disc. And I think another very uh, happy circumstance here is that the infrastructure of working with Eric Tomlinson at Anvil and now getting to be familiar with these London-based musicians knowing who they are and how they played and whatever. So it, I think it you know, made the recording go really, really well because there was already a rhythm and, um, uh, and a familiarity with the environment and with the people he was working with and how it was going to sound. 
it it just is terrific recording, terrific album, and an excellent picture. I think it's it, we were talking about the quality of Heidi. I think it's also a very a very excellent film, uh, and a and a great canvas for him. I think it's my favorite adaptation of the novel. To me, you know, maybe it's biased because it has a John Williams score, but I mean, you know, I love the Bernard Herrmann one. Orson Welles is marvelous an actor as he is. I don't know if he's exactly the right time for the character as much as George C. Scott is, because I think George C. Scott is phenomenal. Susanna York, interestingly, doing her first of three projects that would be have a John Williams score. She did the very next year, Images, and then uh, Superman. Yeah, I agree. It's it's my favorite adaptation as well. Um, they did age Jane up a little bit uh, in the adaptation, but they aged. Uh, you know, Scott and York are actually about the age the age gap that they should be based on the novel. They're both a little bit older, but no, it's it's a very sensitive adaptation, very intelligently um, scripted to update kind of the language. You know, for modern years, again, excellent cinematography, wonderful use of color, even if it's you know muted on the the home video releases. Talk about films that I would love to see in a theater, right? You know, I would love if, if I could go back in time, man, to, to to see that, to hear that. Yeah, I think it's a, a quite excellent, quite literary adaptation. Gene Marsh, magnificent as his first wife. So yeah, just all around, fantastic cast, fantastic looking film, and another wonderful opportunity, you know, for Williams to, to knock it out of the park. This is the, now the ultimate version, you know, because the silver screen edition from the late 80s was, uh, for a time, very, very expensive to get a hold of. Like, you know, people were paying over 100 quid to get that. And then obviously La La Land Records, yes, they released uh, an edition which was very welcome some time ago. But this is now the, the ultimate edition. I mean, I know we, we use that word, the ultimate edition, quite a lot. Well, once, once again, uh, you know, um, the deep dive with Universal Music Group. But unfortunately, uh, it seemed that the Quarter Inch Album Master from 1970 is all that there is. So I thought, well, we may as well just get a new high-res capture of that, so at least we've got it. And I was able to clean up a few things. Um, and uh, um, just just some very minor things. I didn't want to, you know, there was nothing really to do to it other than uh, minor and just paying attention and taking care of any dropouts or funky edits that with extra clarity you can sometimes hear. So 
oh yes, absolutely, it's the best it ever sounded, no question about it. And I think it's also all the more evident in the extra bonus tracks that you put at the end of the program, because they give us the opportunity to uh, hear even more detail and more nuance from the recording. And it's all the more fascinating because it allows us to appreciate even more the quality of the performance on this score. I mean, the beauty of this score is so much dependent on the quality of the performance from the musicians. We have some incredible writing for solo instruments here, and there's the big piano solo that opens the love theme track, but there's also some incredible writing for flute, uh, here performed by the great Peter Lloyd, who was the principal flute of the London Symphony Orchestra back in the day, who performed also many other John Williams scores recorded in London. There's also great writing for woodwinds in general and guitar and harp and harpsichords. You know, it's a fantastic display of great writing for solo instruments. And you talk about um, foreshadowing, too. We were talking a little bit about that with Heidi. I'm, I'm listening to some of these passages from Jane Eyre, and this very much feels like this kind of archetypal sound that Williams would create for, for kind of like dark and haunted spaces, right? You know, you, you listen to some of this music for for Jane, you know, kind of wandering around. Um, yeah, very brooding, night, yes. Yeah. Giant house, very brooding. You know, you, you can draw a straight line from that, I think, to things like, you know, Jabba's Palace or the, the Temple of Doom, you know. This is... <laughs> he likes those, those uh, parallel string tritones, you know. Yes, that, 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 yes. That's, you know, he keeps good, but, but they're very, yes, very unnerving. Yes. Getting back to the main theme, though, did we establish, because uh, forgive me, like the past several months have been totally overloaded with 
hooked the sound of music <laughs> and the Fiddler on the Roof concert. So this almost feels like another lifetime when we worked on this, and it was small by comparison to those other things. But you have Jane on screen playing the theme, the yes. piano. Yes, yes. Go to the piano, play something. establish whether we think this melody was written prior to filming? Uh, In this case, the melody was written. I don't think she's playing to anything in particular. I I think there was evidence that there was actually another classical, like a Mendelssohn piece that she was actually supposed to be playing. I don't know if she was actually playing anything at all on set. Um, Some clever editing then? Uh, Yeah. the, The indications are, though, that, you know, Williams would have gotten to work on on the melodies for the score after that trip, you know, he right. uh, fired he's, he's up. He's definitely sketched out ideas. Yeah, yeah. He, he sketched out those ideas. I do not know that, that she would have actually been, been playing that on the, on the piano or that it was it was used as playback. It certainly could have been, I suppose. It's interesting though, that in both of these stories, the main theme in the score is a melody that's known in the yes. universe. <laughs> Yes, it um, appears in the film. And again, I, I alluded to this earlier, um, that man who thought about these things very carefully um, knew that that melody for, uh, was going to be important, the love theme, because there, there's a scene late in the film where, where Jane has, she, you know, she discovers this horrible secret about his past. And, and so she runs across the moors. She winds up in this little English community, uh, the St. John River, the St. John Sinjin, I think they say his name is probably Sinjin yes. Rivers. Sinjin. It looks like St. John, but Sinjin Rivers. Um, That's right. And so she's been away from Rochester for this time. And the film follows the structure of the book, which is to say, when Jane leaves, we don't see Rochester again until Jane sees Rochester again. So there's kind of this long period late in the film where one of our leads is completely off screen, right? We have no word of him. We don't know what's happening. You know, we only find out later uh, what had befallen him during that period. That's a challenge dramatically, right? Because you want that relationship to continue to be a part of the narrative, even if only internally. And so man knew that John Williams was the key here, that he could take this theme and deploy it very strategically, that having used it prominently in the film up to that point, the viewer would associate that music with Rochester and his relationship with Jane. And so there's this scene where she's, you know, she's painting and the viewer is meant to understand that that's where her heart is, that that's where she's she's thinking of. And he thought, well, how am I going to do it? What's the best way that I can do this? Is she going to find a note from the daughter or the sketch from the daughter? Is, is she going to paint a picture of Rochester? You know, he didn't want anything too much on the nose. He wanted to be more subtle about it. He wanted to be a little more artistic about it. And so she paints the sunset 
of their first meeting and the music comes in and the music is Rochester in that moment. The music is that love that exists between them. And according to Mann, this was all very carefully planned and this was thought out, you know, even from the, the early stages that he knew that that's how important Williams was going to be to the drama. Will you come and sit here and you can help me with some of these? I just see them staring at me in church. Finally, you go from one extreme to the other. Yeah, that's, I think, the power of music and film. I mean, it's whenever music is able to speak the unspoken or make you see the unseen, uh, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Williams talked about that. He there. The, I found an interesting article where he gave a talk. It was at uh, the National Film Theater uh, with David Meeker. And I would love to, to see a rec- <laughs> I don't know if anyone recorded or transcribed that talk, but there was a little bit of press coverage. And they, they talked about how Williams talked about how one of the roles of music is to provide, and this was the only quoted part, hidden dialogue. You talked about the, the score can provide hidden dialogue to express those unspoken thoughts. And he showed actually um, clips from Jane Eyre to illustrate that point. And I, I, it didn't specify what the clips were, but I have to imagine that that, that scene, it seems to me, would have very likely been one of them. Um, because it's, it's a case par excellence of that, uh, of that kind of scoring philosophy. Jane, wait. I think there's a couple of things maybe to elaborate about the affinity that John Williams felt to this film and to this project in general. One is the fact that, as we mentioned earlier, this project gave him the opportunity to write in the lore of English folk music. And I'm reminded of the interview that you also, John, mentions throughout the liner notes, which is a beautiful interview that he did with Derek Ellie in 1978 for the British film magazine, Films and Filming, where he discussed quite a bit about Jane Eyre and this project. Yeah. And he mentions the fact that he was able to tap with this score into what he felt was the purest form of music, which is the music that 
comes from the bowels of the earth, like he says in that interview. So something that is very part of the folk, part of the people. And, and it's a very interesting observation he makes. Absolutely. And the other thing that perhaps makes this project very close to his heart, I think, is also the fact that it gave him the opportunity to expand and elaborate the material that he wrote for the film in a more concert-like approach. And one of the great examples, of course, is the scherzo to Thornfield, which is nowhere to be heard in the film itself, but uh, he developed it as a beautiful concert piece for the soundtrack album that sounds truly as the epitome, in many ways, of the oldest characters that he would write through the following years. <laughs> yes. But anyway, it's curious that it was actually written as a piece, and it's nowhere to be found in the film itself. clue we have is is when the um, original album notes come up it, it describes I believe I don't remember the exact language but it, it was it was meant to express Jane's sense of excitement and anticipation as she's as she's traveling you know to Thornfield Hall but yeah it, it's not in the film it's it's composed specially for the album and I don't know how many maybe Mike can think of something I don't know how many antecedents there were for Williams writing kind of a big orchestral set piece just inspired by the film's material that had not appeared, that debuted on the album, that wasn't for the film, that was a, effectively a, an album arrangement or a concert arrangement uh, on this scope. Can you think of anything earlier, Mike? Prior to this, no, no like, nothing's coming to mind. But uh, also his source music that he composed for this ended up not used. Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, he did no, a that's, string that's quartet, true. A wonderful string quartet. It is. These, Lovely piece, um, yes. But it was replaced by a some well-known classical composer, in it, in it, that was recorded late, so perhaps they had already, you know, slugged it in and and just gotten used to the temp there. But uh, yeah, not, you you have that on you have that on the album here. And in terms of um, some of the instruments that were used that are really particularly give us that English sound, um, I'm trying to remember now. One is like some bass flute of some kind. There's a recorder. There's actually, a recorder, I right? Believe. Yeah. is harpsichord in this um there's some wonderful sounds that um really really give us the um uh, lock us into the environment 
I was really, you know, delighted when a long time later, the next time we kind of get this from him is all the way into um, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yes. Where he comes back, where you wouldn't expect him to after already having done the first two and um, to now go into this very, very old English type of style and bringing back really some um, echoes of Jane Eyre. I can see that because that film is particularly lyrical in its cinematography. There is much more emphasis in that third film on mood and atmosphere. Um, and so, yeah, I can see where that might have felt natural yes. going in. But that's, yeah, that's an excellent point. That is my favorite of the Harry Potter scores as well. So. his love for English music and the music of composers like Ralph Vaughan Williams or Edward Elgar or Frederick Delius, you know, and also tapping into that, uh, you know, Greensleeves type of deep English folk vernacular that he probably feels very close to. And this is something that he also would revisit years later when he wrote the score for Steven Spielberg's War Horse which was set in, again, in the English countryside. So possibly some gestures from Genere really went also in that score as well. Although he does make a distinction between Wales and England. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yes, well, that's absolutely true. You're right. And, uh, but it's also interesting to think about uh, another project that, in which he could revisit Genere, that was the album called Pops Britannia. He recorded with the Boston Pops in 1988, I think. A beautiful collection of English music and uh, in which he could finally record the stunning symphonic suite he developed from Jane Eyre, where he was able to truly treat the material as a full-out symphonic suite, and, and that's marvelous. glad you talked about the when we think of album arrangements and you know it was part of the the British music scene Jane Eyre for quite some time you know he, he arranged it for Charles Gerhardt and 
That version is worth seeking out. I don't think it's very widely available. Well, the Prince and the Pauper album, wasn't it? I think. Yep. Uh, yeah. Way back. Um, so it's 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 hard to find, but it's good. Well, it's interesting that we have um, so recording this again. It was during the interval of Fiddler on the Roof. So when this was done, then everybody came. He could work continued on Fiddler into 1971, and that got finished. And then back in the UK to do images in 72. But then after that, that sort of, so we, from goodbye, Mr. Chip to images is a span of about four and a half years where a lot of time spent in the UK. And then um, nothing, I think, until Thomas and the King. Yep, 1975. Right? So, <laughs> Step out, ladies. Which, Step which out. We, which, which we've mentioned before. But, uh, um, you know, it, it's, things seem to change a little bit. And then, of course, we get to Star Wars. And then we're back to a whole other big, very fruitful period of working over there. Yes, yes, yes. But I think J- Jane Eyre and Fiddler happening at the same time, I think that really established that whole series of scores that were done at uh, Anvil with Eric Tomlinson. Yes. From all the way up through Return of the Jedi. And uh, also, you know, helped to solidify William's reputation. You know, he got the Emmy for for Jane Eyre. He got the Oscar for adapting uh, Fiddler. Yes. By the time these projects came out, there was very little doubt that, you know, he had arrived. Right. And it, it may have taken, you know, until something with the blockbuster scale of Star Wars to really solidify that. But musically speaking, um, and in terms of, you know, industry attention yeah this it was a real watershed year This is uh, also a nice way to cap off our conversation today, guys. It was absolutely delightful to put a spotlight on these two magnificent John Williams works from the late 60s, early 70s, Heidi and Jenner, now again available in a beautiful two-CD set, available from Quartet Records. I'm so happy that we spent some time discussing this fundamental phase of the career of John Williams, before we tackle, in the next episode, the other <laughs> release that came out at the end of this year. We'll be staying in England uh, spiritually. But yes, yes. Even... Yet another English literary uh, uh, connection yes. there. Even though everything recorded in California. But uh, uh, there's a lot to talk about. Oh, yes. There's definitely a lot to talk about that. There is, so, you know. in the meantime, enjoy Heidi Engineer from Quarter Records. And Mike, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, this was great. And I love talking about this whole um, period in uh, John Williams's career because it's, uh, it's really sort of uh, the center of the hourglass in many ways. And thank you, John. It was great to have you here. Looking forward to see you again very soon. I was in- incredibly excited to, to get to write about this music and it's been absolutely lovely getting to talk to you about it today. And thank you, Tim, for once again hosting the podcast with me. 
it was a pleasure. Yes, thank you, thank you so much, Mike. Thank you so much, John and um, Rizzio. Look, you know, and thank you to Jose for this terrific double CD set. Everything's come together very well, as it always, thankfully, usually does, which is great. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It was really, really very satisfying to get these uh, these done. Looking forward to see all of you very soon, and to our listeners and followers, happy holidays. You will hear from us very soon. Thank you, gents. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. You all take care. Excellent. Bye-bye.